0: Thank you Hello, word travelers, genre benders, word benders, and genre travelers. I'm Brooke Warner, and I'm here with Grant Faulkner, who I'd classify as a genre traveler, word bender for sure. Grant, hey.
1: Yeah, why not?
0: (laughs) So we're in for a fun episode today because we're interviewing an author who's written a wild ride of a book, Flux, a novel that defies conventions for sure in all the good ways. And Jinu Chong's book is definitely ambitious. He's done something that I love and we're going to talk more about it. Uh, It's really a hard line to walk when you have a book that it's like very tightly wound on the one hand uh, so you don't want to give it away, and so we are not going to do spoilers about like all the time travel intricacies because everybody needs to go out and read the book. But the book is really like a puzzle, and it was super satisfying to read and to piece together and be like, ah, okay, I get it. And it's been a while since I've had that kind of reading experience, uh, especially because Grant, you know, I I listened to so many audio books in preparation for our podcasting, but this one I sat down and read, and it had me. Totally into it, engrossed over the course of three nights. I felt like I got a mental workout. And so I'm curious your thoughts on that kind of fiction, you know, that makes you work hard, but it's also satisfyingly complex. I was thinking to myself, it's like keeping us younger, you know, I feel (laughs) more mentally flexible somehow
1: but no crossword puzzles involved. Exactly. The pleasure or the purpose isn't to ward off Alzheimer's, but it's, it's definitely good for <laughs> one's brain. And I like to stick up for books that are complex in this way, because I often hear books disparage because people will say, oh, it was too challenging. It was too tough of a read. And I, I think books like this should be celebrated because they're challenging. But also, Brooke, this, it, I, I want to note that there's so much going on in this book, and it's also very emotionally complex. And there's a lot about Grief and loss, because Bo is just eight years old when he loses his mother, and the story grapples with family estrangement and abuse and violence and and the multi layeredness in this one is profound. Not to mention um, their sexual identity and Asian American identity, and and specifically in its place in tech. So, so I'm curious what you made of all this, since that's the twist we're referencing in the episode.
0: Yeah, well, what I make of it is that I loved all of it. You know, I think sometimes I don't pick up sci-fi because I think it's going to be like real sci-fi, all machines and drones and futuristic stuff that I honestly probably would like, but I just don't gravitate toward. Uh, And Flux first grabbed me actually because of its cover. It's a very, very cool cover. And I liked the title Flux. And then I confessed to just really liking the author's name. And so I kept reading and then I was like, okay, time travel, I can get into this. Uh, But the part of the pitch that grabbed me was the interpersonal stuff, right? The queer narrative, the boy who loses his mother, Uh, There's another older character, Blue, who's in his late 40s, and he can only speak with the aid of cybernetic implants. And there was just a lot that I thought I could get into. And then for me, the reading experience that I loved was twofold. I loved the 80s nostalgia. You know, obviously, I say I'm a child of the 80s. I don't think it's too much to give away that Flux, the title, comes from Back to the Future and Doc's Flux Capacitator. Uh, and let's just say, like, that should totally be a hook to anyone who's over 40 who loved Back to the Future. Uh, and then the modern thing is these overtones of the Elizabeth Holmes. There are no story that Ginu is going to get into in the interview, Because there is a lot of like really dark stuff in the story, that scam story, uh, you know, and drawing inspiration from what went down there. And I followed that story very, very closely, as did so many other people. So I found all these things really satisfying how he was able to weave all of it together. And Grant, I'm curious what your thoughts are on this technique in fiction. I mean, both the sort of pop culture nostalgia part, but also drawing from things like you know, media things that are playing out in real time, like the Theranos story. Do you think that's a slam dunk, or do you think you can risk mismanaging it or alienating readers? For instance, although I'm thinking like there's just no possible way to alienate people by talking about the flux Capacitator.
1: <laughs> I think you're right. I mean, I suppose you can mismanage nostalgia or, or you know, different eras, especially if you represent the eras inaccurately, and that can alienate people and there's always a risk when you write about contemporary events that that it's going to date your work too much but in general i think people love this sort of thing and i'm thinking of stranger things the netflix series which which captured people like me who love seeing the 80s on screen in such fun ways but then it also had a huge audience of younger people who literally heard Kate Bush for the first time through the show. I, I was in, uh, intrigued by that phenomena. And then similar no- novels like Eleanor and Park and The Perks of Being a Wallflower drew on pop culture from the, the 80s and 90s and as, as one who loved the 90s I have Chuck Klosterman's uh, new book on the decade and I should have googled the title because I forget it. But anyway, I read the reviews of it and it looks great. We should do a show just on nostalgia book. Totally. It's, it's a powerful draw in all forms. Um, but I think there are hazards and and. Books that I think consciously delve into nostalgia can create a type of, you know, kind of in group fan club if pop culture references are too thick and and as an author I think you have to make sure that your story and characters are the main drivers, not pop culture references.
0: Yeah, that's a good point. I was thinking about a couple books that we've talked about on the show. I mean, in one case, it was a guest when we had Leslie Tenorio on the show, and he wrote The Son of Good Fortune. And that tapped into like the Filipino diaspora and pop culture in America and how that character who was like Filipino raised in the States was informed by pop culture because his mom had been a B movie action star who was then like making a living scamming men online. And I don't know, there just was a little bit of me that as I was reading Flux. I was like, oh, yeah, there's some of those uh, overtones as well, you know, of the pop culture plus the scam storyline. And then Lovecraft Country, you know, which is uh, by Matt Ruff, which was also a show. So some people might have watched it. I read the book and then watched half the episodes in the show. But that novel deals with really serious themes of racism, power and violence, but it's also supernatural. And then there's this interesting edge to it because it's kind of like this faux horror thing going on. Uh, and we saw that replicated in movies like Get Out, which came out in 2017. Um, and maybe a better way of saying that it's like less than faux horror is that the creators weave together humor and horror or satire and horror. But that's like part of what makes it feel pop culture to me, you know, and it's something that's also trending in storytelling, like just this leaning into nostalgic tropes. And I mean that in a good way. Uh, And Grant, even in naming these two books, I'll say that neither of them had the impact on me that Back to the Future did, obviously, because I watched it when I was a kid. Uh, And then some readers of Flux have also tied Gnew's story to the Black Mirror, which he also references in the interview. So he's clearly very, you know, conscientious of where he's drawing inspiration from. And that's more futuristic, very dark also, Uh, you know, and then so there's like this interplay between the futuristic sort of apocalyptic meets late 20th century nostalgia. But yet I can totally see how those two things go hand in hand. But Grant, one last topic before we bring on Genu, because I think it's important to say is just about time travel uh, and that's what's fun about today's show is like there's so much material to draw from. And I know that you've read time travel books. I mean, everyone has. But what are a couple of favorites that you would throw out? Because I really when I was thinking about which ones I remember and love, I could only come up with The Time Traveler's Wife and a book I read a while ago called Ursula Under. So I'm not super well versed in the subgenre.
1: Yeah, I'm I'm very pro-time travel, especially when it comes to personal time travel in real life, Um, (laughs) if you can manage that. You know, I actually haven't read a lot of time travel in novels uh, since my teens or 20s when I read more sci-fi and fantasy. But Diana Gabaldon's Outlander series and Octavia Butler's Kindred, they've been on my to-read list for ages. And also the local author, local to the Bay Area, Annalee Newitz, um, who we should have on the show uh, wrote The Future of Another Time, which is also on my t- to-read list. So um, I've got to get to those this year. Um, but I think I get most of my time travel through movies, actually. I, I, I loved everything, everywhere, all at once. And while I was watching that, I wondered how you would... Capture that type of time travel in a book. I'm not sure that you could. Um, and, you know, when I was a kid, I was riveted by Planet of the Apes and then The Terminator and Back to the Future, as you as you mentioned. And I thought of another very sentimental and melodramatic movie with Christopher Reeves and Jane Seymour called Somewhere in Time. And uh, probably somebody listening is going to laugh that I love that movie. <laughs> but uh, t- time travel can be uh, sentimental, and I'm fundamentally a sentimentalist.
0: I love all those examples and reminders to the movies. Yes, I mean, time travel is just such a great tool and it's fun and it's sentimental and it's wild and crazy. It's all the things. So it clearly captures the imagination. Uh, Ginu has done something with flux that I find nothing short of delightful. So I'm eager to get to the interview, which will happen right after the musical interlude. Welcome back, everyone. I'm so pleased to introduce Nu Chong, who received an MFA from Columbia University. His short stories have appeared in the Southern Review, Chicago Quarterly Review, and Salamander. He lives in New York City, and he is here to talk with us about Flux, his debut novel. Welcome,
2: Nu. Thank you so much, and thank you for having me.
0: Yeah, it's such a pleasure. You know, I I read your book over the course of three nights, and it had me on the edge of my seat. I mean, it's so fast paced, so original. And then I went to read others reactions to it. I have to confess mostly on Goodreads since the book is so recently (laughs) released. Um, And a single word kept showing up that mirrored my own feelings about the book, which is ambitious. It's a very ambitious novel, and especially for a debut novel. And I was wondering if you could start uh, the interview today by sharing about the conception of this book and why you chose time travel to tell the story of flux.
2: Absolutely. I would probably agree that it's ambitious, perhaps too much, because <laughs> it was it was very stressful to put this together, because it ran so uh, opposite of what I normally try to do when I'm putting the outline of a book together. I outline like crazy. I uh, That's how I always try to start any sort of project. And this one um, took a really long time just to be able to connect all the different strings. There's a lot of uh, but there's multiple timelines, there's um, clues that are placed in the beginning that kind of only become apparent toward the end. It took a lot of, you know, organization to, to put that all together. But it started as a single seed when I... Uh, I finished Bad Blood by John Carreyrou, which is, it's its taken to be, you know, the, the real firsthand account of the fall of Theranos and the sort of uncovering of, of the fraud of uh, Elizabeth Holmes, because Carreyrou was the journalist who who first exposed her back then. I read that story, and it was so fascinating to me, especially because I think scams and the downfall of a scam is such a popular narrative these days. Uh, People seem to catch on to it so quickly and, and, and and society and history is rife with them. So it's, it's, it's a really rich ground for that. I wanted to do a story like that uh, and to portray the, the transformation that's undertaken by a lie that gets spun by, you know, just overconfidence and, a network of kind of fabrication into something that looks like the next big thing, but absolutely isn't. Uh, And, and the way that people just, you know, put aside so much of their intuition and and buy into it just because it sounds exciting. I mean, Elizabeth Holmes hoodwinked a number of incredibly intelligent people into believing that this was her, her company was anything. And uh, to watch it all fall was, of course, humiliating for everybody, but, you know, kind of really telling us to how convincing she could be and how convincing success or th- or the narrative of success appears to be. And, yeah, I wanted to do that plus time travel, because I think the way that multiple timelines kind of fracture and talk with one another and combine in interesting, constructive and destructive ways was was uh, something I really wanted to try. Um, I wrote a lot of this and the outline while in my MFA program at Columbia. And as is often said, MFA workshops kind of push you toward the literary and not toward genre or, or explorations of that. And I felt that kind of pressure from from workshop leaders and other people in my cohort to kind of to push myself in that way, um, which is how uh, I got into talking about pop culture and the consumption of media and celebrity, and how that kind of can be a poison on on a developing person's mind. Sorry. I also, want, oh, sorry. So, <laughs> I oh, sorry, Dino. I
1: I, I'm I'm kind of fixated on the on the pop culture part uh, since you, you you started talking about that because there's so many great '80s references in the book. And I don't want to make assumptions, but I'm guessing you weren't a child of the 80s. I was not. (laughs) And I was wondering if you could tell me about the draw to the 80s for you and why you chose to integrate so much of it into your debut novel. And I guess you were kind of getting there with your answer. Oh, yeah, yeah. If you could keep going in that direction.
2: That world is, you know, to someone who didn't live through it and has now things that are very popular, like Stranger Things and Glow and like uh you know San Junipero from Black Mirror all of those kind of very stylized takes on what the world was like back then and i can't tell if it was really true but the, the effect on me was that it was this really interesting kind of high energy frenetic place that uh is so different to our world now it's it's a lot less i feel like sensitive and um is seems to be a little bit more integrated with with uh I don't know aesthetic than than we now are, but I feel like I'm I felt pushed in that direction because the eighties and this kind of postmodern look at it is having such a heyday and I thought about you know Miami Vice and Night Rider and and those kinds of shows that were that just oozed coolness and it felt like the the perfect place to set uh, this very kind of dark and moody detective show. It, it all, it all came together that way that I have no idea of knowing was really true because I didn't live through it, but it's, it's an interesting kind of prism through which a person who was born after the fact can look at it through media.
0: Yeah. It's really fascinating and it's well done. I mean, I am a child of the eighties and I loved a lot of these references so much. I, I do want to go back to the Holmes Theranos thing though, because Obviously, I picked up on it, and I also followed that story with so much interest, and your character, Io Emsworth, is this very Holmes-ish kind of character, yet she... She doesn't have quite as much agency um, as Elizabeth Holmes seems to have had. And so you talked a bit about how that real life story played into this. But just be curious to hear you say a little bit more. I mean, was it the true inspiration or did you already have a storyline in mind? And then the Theranos thing came in and, and kind of escalated that
2: storyline. I, uh, I think I've always been attracted to the scam story. And that one was the first one that I saw that really captured everybody's attention. And I know there have been many more before it and after, but that was the one it came at the right time because I was reading it. I didn't know what I was going to do for my, uh, for my thesis project at Columbia and it felt like the right thing to happen. But the character of Elizabeth Holmes was also a huge part of it because I feel like she unlike some others at the center of their own sort of scam narratives was this just mysteriously oblivious person who I really don't think that uh, she, what she, what she thought that what she was doing was wrong. I really believe that she actually thought she had something and this like kind of overconfident, just complete unreality of her perception of herself and, and the world that was was the perfect character to, to sort of talk about in a uh, and and to inhabit in a book. It felt it felt right that way.
1: Well, your book um, it, it's hard for people to to classify uh, because it's clearly got some sci fi roots due to the time travel alone, but it's also very character driven, and you're dealing with some deep interiority in this book with the three players, Brandon, Beau, and Blue. And this led one reviewer to even suggest, and I quote the sci-fi elements are just a tool to tell a character-driven contemporary tale. And so I'm curious what your reaction is to that and to others who suggest it's speculative fiction.
2: Mm, I think that's completely true. The heart of the book that kind of revealed itself after this you know, initial excitement and fervor I had over telling a scam story was, was Brendan and the way that you know, he, he has become, he's broken by, past and I I feel like grief and the the very human reaction to it it, is such a rich thing to talk about it's something that is common to everybody everybody has experienced grief like this in some way and um, it's a universal kind of headspace that we all inhabit or are unlucky enough to inhabit at some point in our lives that was that was the thing that kept me going and and a lot of the different tools used, as like uh, the time travel and the the scam and and the the television and the, the pop culture of it, was really me just trying to make Brandon's grief as real as it could be, because it is the heart of the book.
0: Well, and to keep going on, Brandon. He's a bisexual, queer, Asian American man, not the kind of protagonist you see so often represented in fiction. And at the beginning of the book, he has a serious relationship with a man and later he's with a woman. And I'm curious about your desire to depict and center a character such as him. And if there was anything at stake for you personally to showcase this kind of protagonist, who's clearly not like the typical leading man.
2: I have so many thoughts about this because the you know, the uh, the two books that I held very dear in my heart when I was writing this were um, The Sympathizer by Viet Thanh Nguyen and um, Ellison's Invisible Man. And those are two books that are narrated by these very kind of faceless, neither of them have names, neither of them really, you know, don't know at all what they look like and and over the course of each of those books they kind of take on the color and the culture of the world around them and and are able to kind of act slightly outside of it even though they are part of it in some way i i loved that quality to their characters and to make it was part of the reason i wanted to make Brandon only half asian so that the ambiguity of his ethnicity is apparent like on his face when people look at him they they don't know what he is. and Korean people wonder if he can speak Korean. White people wonder, you know, if he can speak English. And uh, that was so rich to me. And it extends as well into his sexual orientation. I feel concerned with society's sort of obsession with labels and the need for people who are young to kind of align themselves so confidently, so surely and certainly with, with something without really knowing who they are. And and the way that Brandon kind of has this attitude of I don't know, it's sometimes it's men and sometimes it's women. I, I, I really don't know. That that felt refreshing to me, and, and that was probably the thing that I I wanted to take out of my own life and, and sort of put in him as well, because I feel as I feel often. The, the, this need for categorization when I don't know myself that well and I couldn't answer that question as clearly as as I feel that society expects us to.
1: Well, know a lot of uh, reviewers were curious about why you gave your character Raider so much real estate in the book. And perhaps this ties back into my earlier 80s nostalgia question, but I'm I'm curious if you could share a bit about this aspect of the storyline and whether you can share with us why you wanted to have an abuse storyline in the book in addition to everything else that's included because it, it is ambitious.
2: I felt inspired by the idea of the celebrity dynasty or like the, the dynastic narrative that kind of follows certain very famous families and their attachés and their satellites throughout history. And, and the way that most people living their lives have no contact with, you know, the Kardashians or something. And yet their face and their likeness, their their story permeates every, every it seems like every inch of the fabric of our lives sometimes. Uh, that was really, it, it, it was something that I wanted to try to do in the book because it feels like the most common way that normal you know, or non-famous people interact with that and, and the way that everybody kind of comes together and Gossips about what happens at this Vanity Fair Oscars party that has nothing to do with any of us, but it's just like it's all that, that's on everybody's minds, and we've, we're following this stupid Justin Bieber, Selena Gomez, Haley Bieber thing that has nothing to do with any of us, but it's 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 intoxicating to all of us to talk about that. That feels like a facet of of you know the normal person's consumption of celebrity that that borders on the parasocial, but is is a part of everybody's lives, whether we want it to or not. Um, Somebody, when I was talking with somebody, they, they kind of characterized this element of the story as very reminiscent of Me Too and the repercussions that it's had, you know, when something that is beloved for decades becomes marred by the real world kind of seeping in and poisoning it. I know a lot of people had this very kind of painful traumatic experience with the Cosby show or the music of Michael Jackson and, and other things like that. And and to those, everybody's got something like that. I didn't really watch the Cosby show, so it didn't affect me as much. I did. I wasn't that big of a fan of Michael Jackson. So it didn't affect me as much, but I do have something like that in my life. Same as Brandon. And it was, it was you know a really tough journey to kind of reconcile that and it's it was something that was happening literally at the time I was writing it talking about the Army Hammer and call me by your Name, which was you know a really formative thing in my life and in my journey to kind of accepting myself when I saw that movie i said i have to it's time i have to I have to come out I can't be this way anymore i i I hold that movie very high in my in my life for that reason, and now it's I can't watch it anymore because of what happened with Army Hammer, and it, it's it's the journey that I've gone through with that was painful, and I it was easy to portray that happening to Brandon in exactly the same way. Hmm.
0: I, it's so interesting to hear you talk about it because uh, I think for readers who read your book and then see it through that prism, they're going to find it extra fascinating. Um, and you're just pulling at so many threads in this book. Uh, and in closing we like to ask guests what they're working on next. I mean, I love that this was your thesis statement for rather your thesis for Columbia. That just is like, first of all, awesome for you. Congratulations. (laughs) Um, But clearly you've given yourself a lot of leeway, you know, given the kind of genre bending nature of the book. And, uh, you know, will you stay in sci-fi? Do you want to focus more character driven fiction or is there something wholly new in the works?
2: I, come up again. I've been coming up against this question, you know, after this book was kind of all the strings were tied and it was sent away to the publisher of the question of what I was going to do next. And I did a lot of reflecting on how working on this book made me feel. And I think the thing I came away with it was, it was kind of a bummer. It, I I felt drained and, oftentimes sad while I was working on it It was forcing me to relive a lot of my own sort of insecurity and and trauma because a a lot of what makes Brandon Brandon is what makes me me and I'm hoping not to do that with a new book I would really love to work on something more joyous and uh, something that is a little bit more uplifting than this one even though you know this book ends in a semi-uplifting way, but something—it—it it, it wasn't something that made me feel good inside to write, and that's—that's the—that's the, the sense that I'm I'm chasing with the with a next book.
0: Well, Gino, good luck with that, and it's a fabulous debut. I wish you all the success in the
2: world.
1: Yes, yeah, thanks so much, Gino. Thank you so much. We'll be right back with today's book trend after this short break.
0: Well, Grant, it seems appropriate that we bring up to listeners this week uh, this suggestion that was recently issued by the Authors Guild that seeks to support authors and publishers to prevent sublicensors from mining data from books. And this is an interesting development because it's ongoing in this world of AI, chat, GPT, and all the ways in which books and content are being impacted by these advances in AI, uh, because, of course, these technologies are mining books, you know, because they have to make them smart. And so, Grant, uh, all of this was spurred by Findaway, an audiobook platform we know and love. Uh, So let's tell listeners what's happened.
1: Yeah, this is so interesting. It's something I would have never imagined, but I guess a lot of AI issues are going to fall in that bucket. So basically, it came out that Findaway, which was purchased by Spotify last year, turned over to apple a whole bunch of files for what amounts to ai training and because you have to to read the fine line and book contracts it turns out the findaway was well within the right to do this but it caused a lot of upset for publishers authors and even for audiobook narrators and and i get this upset brooke but for for listeners out there who might think what's the big deal what would you say
0: yeah, I think the big deal is just how much we don't know about the AI. Like you said, uh, it's the whole open AI thing is on the verge of blowing open this brave new world and we're going to be on the other side of it, Grant. <laughs> you know, it reminds <laughs> me of when we were talking a few weeks ago about that generational divide of pre and post tech and there's going to be another one that is pre and post open AI. And I'm sure a lot of people listened to that recent Daily episode in which that New York Times reporter shared how Microsoft's version of the chat GPT basically fell in love with him and urged him to leave his wife, you know, leave your wife for the AI. Uh, and it's just wild out there. And so I think given these vast unknowns and that we're totally in this beta moment content creators are rightfully wary. And we're the ones who are turning over our intellectual property by virtue of not thinking through what may or may not be in our contracts. And then since we can't know the consequences, it's a strange time. And it reminds me of the days before ebooks and audiobooks could even be dreamed of or conceptualized by publishers. And those rights, of course, were not held by many legacy publishers. And that in turn created a lot of possibilities for future companies to exploit those rights. And so now a lot of book contracts will say things like the publisher holds the rights for technologies that exist and which may exist someday. (laughs) You know, so our contract, for instance, says that we hold the rights in print and digital formats. Uh, And then it says in all versions and forms of media now known or hereafter developed, including without limitation by any electronic or electromagnetic means or analog or digital signal. Uh, <laughs> you know It goes <laughs> on and on. So it's like we have to like, you know, create all these words to talk about these things as you're saying like that we can't even dream up.
1: Yeah. Uh, listeners, authors, be careful with your digital signal. <laughs> <laughs> that's all we have to say I'm going to add to that though I'm gonna, it, it, seriously it's worth reading the disclaimer that the Authors Guild expressly recommends uh, to be added to book contracts and and it reads the author expressly prohibits the publisher or platform from using the work in any manner for purposes of training artificial intelligence technologies to generate text including without limitation technologies that are capable of generating works in the same style or genre as the work and it goes on to suggest publisher will use best efforts to include a limitation in any sublicense of the work prohibiting the use of the work for training and developing generative AI technologies. That's a lot, a lot to mm-hmm. fathom. There's a lot to fathom in every uh, contract though. So yeah, always uh, advise r- uh, writers to read them closely. But I'm curious, Brooke, would you object to this language being added to your publishing contract template?
0: Not at all. And it's also not difficult to adhere to. Uh, however, the thing that often happens is that the publisher is negotiating third party deals with other entities. So, for instance, we might try to negotiate a third party deal with an audiobook publisher. So, it would be incumbent on us as the publisher to be watching out for our authors' interests on this front. But Find Away does a lot of deals directly with authors. So, those are the authors negotiating the contracts directly with the audiobook publishers. So, I think what all of this goes to show is that you probably want to have any contract you go into with any kind of publishing or content creator to be vetted. And I do highly recommend the Authors Guild. They do vet a lot of our contracts uh, for She Writes and Spark Press, but also lots of authors. I know they're very author focused, obviously, and you can have peace of mind that way at least.
1: Yeah. Good reminder uh, to use the Authors Guild. Good reminder for me personally. And, you know, we have to think about what we don't even know we should think about because the things we're preparing for don't yet exist. And that includes your, your next book. Um, and that's why we're here. We're, 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 we're here to help you think about what doesn't exist yet and to, to, uh, prepare to write it and create it. So we're a type of futurist here at right-minded, but it's a future you can count on because we're here every week. So please tune in with your friends, your bots, your bots, friends, and help us keep this writerly conversation going.